Our great God, almighty and merciful, we flee to you today for refuge. We give you thanks and praise for marvelous are all your works, your works of creation, of providence, of redemption. All your works are wonderful in our sight. We see your grace and undeserved blessings all around us. We see your covenant faithfulness keeping your promises to a thousand generations. We see you are gracious, forgiving the sins of all who call upon you. We see you are wise, you are loving, you are holy. You are the true God. The God who sees and hears and speaks and acts. The God of power and might, who rules the seas and the stars whose dominion stretches from the mountains to the plains to the valleys, the God who rules and sustains all creation. You are sovereign over all, Lord. Today our great comfort is knowing Your sovereignty. Today our great comfort is knowing You have planned the end from the beginning. Today our great comfort is in knowing the crucified and resurrected God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Indeed, the whole world is in His nail-scarred hands. He is the One holding all things together and in whom all things consist. He holds the scepter of iron to smash the rebellious nations. He holds the shepherd's staff to lovingly lead His trusting sheep. The world around us is full of tumult and uncertainty and chaos. The world around us is shrouded in darkness and is flying apart because it has no center. But You, O Lord, save us from this despair and this confusion. We know that wherever Christ's reign is acknowledged, there is shalom. There is a peace that passes understanding. Wherever Christ is trusted and loved and obeyed, there is a flourishing that fills us with joy unspeakable. And so, O God, we ask today that You would give us the peace and joy of Your Son as we are gathered here today. Would You speak to us and comfort us and console us? Would You remind us and assure us of Your victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil? Hide us in Your Son where no arrow of the enemy can pierce us. Instead, we ask You to fight our battle and give us victory. Smash our idols. Crucify our lusts. Transform our loves. Make us Your new creation, a holy people, a suitable dwelling place for You in all Your glory. O great God, the Father of all, with Your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and Giver of life and who proceeds from the Father through the Son, the one eternal God existing in three persons, Hear our prayer. This is our word of praise and thanks and adoration to You. Amen. Our lesson of the day comes from Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. The oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. 
If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word that You have inspired through holy men of old who wrote by the inspiration of Your Spirit. We thank You that You have preserved Your Word for us, for our instruction in righteousness, to show us the way of salvation, to reveal Yourself to us in all of Your glory and grace. Give us faith to receive Your Word humbly and with thanksgiving that we would cling to Your promises that we would tremble at Your threats, that we would be consecrated as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week I began a uh, series on the book of Malachi and gave sort of an introductory sermon, uh, giving an overview of the themes and structure, uh, some of the background information on the book of Malachi. So if you feel like you're uh, a little bit lost today, uh, hopefully you can uh, find that sermon on the website and, and sort of catch up. Uh, I hope to um, hope by beginning the book of Malachi now, uh, I can hit the end of it just in time for Advent and Christmas. Uh, I know that's a little bit uh, risky for a preacher to tell everybody when he hopes to arrive at a certain point in a book, but now I have a little bit of accountability. Uh, and uh, so anyway, my goal is to just take Malachi sermon by sermon. This is a sermon series laid out for me. It's custom tailored uh, for a preaching series because it really is a series of six or seven sermons that Malachi preached to the priests and to the people of Israel. And as we discussed last week, Malachi's message, he he deals with a lot of important themes, but one of the central themes in Malachi's message is God's covenant with Israel. That's not saying much, I guess, because all of the prophets are dealing with God's covenant with Israel, but Malachi does so in a very powerful way, and he does so uh, in a way that's somewhat different from the other prophets. The six or so, six or seven sermons that Malachi here delivers, delivered to the priests and people of Israel, are focused heavily on God's gracious blessings to Israel and on his covenant faithfulness, as well as the obligations of the covenant on Israel as God's covenant people. If you recall, the word of the Lord came to Malachi almost a hundred years after the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But the, the remnant that returned to the land faced trial, persecution, affliction, and disappointment. The prophets had foretold the glory of a restored kingdom after God's judgment had come to an end, but nothing really appeared all that glorious. 
the people who saw the foundation of the new temple laid broke down and cried those who had seen Solomon's temple in all its glory because it just didn't look quite... It looked small. It looked uh, plain. It looked like a step in the wrong direction. Not a step toward the glory that God's prophets had foretold. So the people had begun to question God's promises of restoration. They feigned obedience half-heartedly. They wallowed in self-pity. And they doubted God's love. They believed Satan's favorite lie. That God was holding out on them. That God had given up on them. And so they, in many ways, had given up on God. This is, after all, the accuser's favorite lie, isn't it? That God is not good, and God is holding out on you, and God does not really love you. This is the lie the accuser used on Eve in the garden, essentially, and this is the lie that he uses on us many times. When God doesn't meet our expectations, when He sends us trials, or when He delays in answering our prayers, or when God disciplines us, the enemy is quick to suggest that God has let let us down, that God has forgotten us, or that God simply doesn't love us. And so we, like the people of Israel need to pay close attention to Malachi's message. Because notice how Malachi starts off his message. He starts off with a reassurance in recounting the love of God. That's the foundation of some of the very difficult things, the prophetic rebukes that he's going to, to give later on in the book. And notice that this is the Word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of Malachi. This is not a prophecy against Israel. This is a prophecy, a word to Israel, the covenant people. Many of the prophecies in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Amos are against the temple or against the people or against nations undergoing judgment. But this is a message to Israel from their covenant God as He reminds them of His love and His faithfulness and His grace. Malachi turns the devil's logic on its head and insists that far from forgetting Israel or holding out on His people, God's actions have been nothing but loving and faithful and gracious. That is precisely because He loves His people that He has treated them this way. Israel had been an unfaithful spouse, but God pursued her and restored her. Israel had been a rebellious son, but God disciplined him and brought him back into the family. Israel had died for their sins, essentially, as a nation, but God raised them back to life. The discipline and afflictions the people endured were not in spite of God's love, but precisely because of His great mercy and covenant 
faithfulness. And the only reason for God to demonstrate this type of relentless love to an ungrateful and rebellious people was simply because He had chosen them to be His covenant people. He had made a covenant with Abraham and promised that through Israel, the Messiah would come and bring a blessing to all the families of the earth. God pursued Israel because He had chosen them. Because they were His special people. So Malachi starts off with um, a pretty uh, strong statement that offends uh, many of our sensibilities today. He says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? If this is love then I don't know what the other thing looks like. But God says, Is not Jacob, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. In order to remind Israel of his singular love for them, the Lord, through Malachi, makes reference back to Genesis 25 and the prophecy given to Rebekah about the two children struggling in her womb She had twins and they were fighting in her womb. And she goes to the Lord seeking seeking a, a prophecy or seeking an explanation or a word from the Lord. And the Lord says to her, to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Malachi puts it in the starkest terms possible. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Even the word order here emphasizes the reversal brought about by God's sovereign will. Is not Esau, the older brother, he comes first, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Esau, then Jacob. But when God declares His sovereign will, I have loved Jacob, Esau have I hated. The word order is switched to show, to emphasize that this is a tremendous reversal that God's providence has brought about. Now to us individualistic, post-modern, post-enlightenment, post-everything Americans, God's sovereign election is one of the more offensive biblical doctrines. Calvin rightly points out that really they're all offensive. Uh, But this one is especially revolting. So I think we need to make sure we understand what's going on here uh, and what what is meant by Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. First of all, we need to make sure we understand how God's love and God's hatred is different from the way we typically think about love and hatred. The popular definitions of love and hatred are usually very petty, very shallow, very emotionalistic. It's primarily about how we feel towards someone. A lot of you've you've said it yourself and you've heard other people declare their their hatred for somebody, and then the next thing you know they're, you know, giving them the shirt off of their back or something. Or declaring their love for somebody, and then the next thing you know they're 
their worst enemy in the world, right? Our, our ideas of love and hate just sort of change with the wind. They change with our emotions. It's all about how we feel towards someone at a given time. On the other hand, God's love and God's hatred have to do, surprise, surprise, with loyalty and allegiance and covenant. So in, uh, in Scripture, when God loves or hates, God's love essentially, basically, means that God chooses somebody or something, that God approves of it, that God makes Himself an ally. He enters into covenant and promises His faithfulness. When God, on the other hand, hates something, it means He rejects it. He disapproves of it. Or even He actively opposes it. So let's take a few examples. Uh, Jacob is is tricked into marrying uh, Leah. uh, And so he ends up with Rachel and Leah. And it says that he loves Rachel and hates Leah. Well, that means that he preferred Rachel over her sister. Not that he just sat around stewing all the time about how much he hated Leah's guts or something. Uh, But think of a different type of example. Hiram, the king of Tyre, is said to have loved David. It meant he was a political ally. It meant he supported him. It meant that he uh, was on his side. David and Jonathan were said... Jonathan is said to have loved David. Of course, they had a a close friendship, but more than that, Jonathan had broken with his father Saul and made himself an ally of David. Jesus uses this uh, similar terminology to describe our relationships with our family relative to our relationships and our allegiance to Jesus. Jesus says that if someone does not hate their father and mother, he cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is obviously not telling you uh, to hate your, your family in the way that we think of hating your family. He's stating where your primary allegiance must be. Where are your commitments? Where are your loyalties? So with that in mind, God has demonstrated His love for Jacob over Esau in choosing Jacob to be the heir of the Abrahamic covenant with all its attendant blessings. God's hatred of Esau is the rejection of Esau from being uh, the seed, the one through whom the promised seed of the Messiah would come. And eventually, because Esau and all of his descendants, uh, God chooses to oppose Esau and his descendants. And it, of course, turns out that uh, they are Israel's number one enemy. So God chooses Jacob as the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. He chooses uh, to reject Esau from that privilege, and he actively opposes uh, Esau and the Edomites, his descendants, uh, as they antagonize Israel. That still doesn't make it what we would consider fair. Okay, I'm not. I'm not trying to reduce the uh, the antithesis here. I'm not trying to say, well, this makes it okay. It's by our standards, that's still not fair, right? 
God seems to have just capriciously chosen one and capriciously rejected the other. We'll come back to that later. But just want you to understand what that means. Second, remember the oracle that God gave to Rebekah about the, about the two brothers. It's really about two nations, uh, not just two individuals. Because God's election, God's sovereign choice uh, to bless and to uh, withhold blessing, is it applies to nations or, or groups, but it also applies to individuals. And sometimes, oftentimes, there is, there is overlap, but never complete overlap between God's choice of a people and God's choice of individuals within that people. So the two are not necessarily and not automatically synonymous. God chose Israel as the special people through whom Messiah would come. But as Paul reminds us in Romans 9, there were many unfaithful Israelites. Not all Jews were true Jews. Not all the children of Abraham were really children of Abraham in terms of his faith. On the other hand, God rejected Edom, he rejected Esau and his descendants, but there very well could have been God-fearing Edomites who decided to join up with Israel. So this is not a uh, head-by-head sort of uh, rejection of all, every single, every last one of Esau's descendants necessarily. This is on the national level of a, of a people we see the same dynamic at work in other ways, especially in the church. God has chosen the church as a whole, as a people, to be recipients of His special grace and blessing. And so the, uh, the apostles in the New Testament can speak to the church and call the church the elect people of God because that is what we are. But that does not mean that every that every last person is guaranteed to go to heaven within the church. There are, there are unfortunately, false sons in the pale of the church. And that is why the apostles speak to us as the elect people of God, because that is what we are. And we have every reason to believe that we are chosen by God marked out by God as His children in baptism unless and until we prove otherwise. So we're exhorted not to receive the grace of God in vain. We're exhorted to make our calling and election sure. There's much more that needs to be said there, but i got to focus on Malachi if I'm going to make it to the end by Advent. Uh, to understand uh, more fully the point that Malachi is going to make in verses 3 and 4, we have to understand what Malachi is saying in light of the historical context. God's love for Israel means that He chose Jacob to be the one through whom the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled, through whom the Messiah would come, and through whom all the families of the earth 
would be blessed. He chose them not because they were the, the biggest nation, not because they were the best nation. He, he chose them as His people because of His own sovereign grace. And that means that He has preserved them. He has always blessed them, protected them, and preserved a remnant. Even in judgment, He has continued uh, to bless them. Humanly speaking, just uh, on, on historical, human, on a human level, Israel would have been barely a blip on the radar screen of the ancient world. They should have been long forgotten by now, along with all the other ites that uh, we read in Deuteronomy. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Edomites. Have you ever met anybody from those peoples? Have you ever? They're not around today. Nobody's ever heard of them. They're gone. They're history. Israel should have been in that list. The Babylonian captivity alone, uh, in addition to a hundred other things, should have swept Israel into the dustbin of history never to be heard of again except in a footnote in some history textbook. But God miraculously preserved them against every superpower of the ancient world. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, on and on and on. The Romans. God preserved them through the exile and planted them back in the land He had promised to Abraham 1,500 years before. Because God loved them. Because God had chosen them to be the vehicle of blessing for the world. On the other hand, God rejected Edom as a people and He consistently thwarted their efforts to gain power and expand their territory. It all started in a big way when Israel uh, was coming out of Egypt after the Exodus and they were on their way to the Promised Land and the Edomites would not let Israel, their cousins basically, would not let Israel pass through their land. They made them go all the way out and around the Dead Sea in the desert and God would not let the Israelites fight them. And so, uh, they were always, from then on, they were always siding with Israel's enemies. One scholar goes so far as to say that Edom is the most frequently attacked by the prophets of all of Israel's enemies. It may, be in, it may in fact be noted that the prophets often employed Edom as a synonym for all of Israel's enemies in general. Because Edom was the earliest, the latest, the closest, and the most consistently hostile of all of Israel's enemies. In fact, the Edomites have the ignoble distinction of having an entire prophetic book against them, just to themselves, the book of Obadiah. I know you read Obadiah last night, but Obadiah is... The, the, they have the you know Jonah's preaching against Nineveh, but uh, Obadiah is all about God's judgment on Edom. You don't want to be an Edomite. When God used the Babylonians to judge Edom, just as Obadiah had prophesied, 
God made sure that they never made much progress in rebuilding. If you've ever been to the Middle East, uh, you may have, or maybe you've seen pictures of the, uh, the ancient fortress, Petra. Uh, it's carved into the rock. It's got these massive uh, canyons. And I mean, this, if, you, if you've seen this thing, uh, you would think, man, whoever held this place had, had it made. I mean, who could ever drive anybody out of here? Well, the Edomites got driven out of there. They had Petra, and they were driven out. God consistently opposed them. God consistently thwarted any plans of theirs to rebuild as a way of protecting Israel. And that's why God says, um, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies says they may build, but I will tear down. And that's exactly what happened. The, uh, the last Edomite that we have uh, reference to in Scripture is the Herods. The Herods in the New Testament were half, uh, they were Idumeans who are from the Edomites. And do you remember in the book of Acts what happens to Herod Agrippa? The people acclaim him as a deity and he doesn't try to stop them. God strikes him down and he's devoured, yes, by worms. God's opposition to the Edomites is consistent and thorough because he's protecting his people, because he's judging their enemies and preserving them for his promises to be fulfilled through them. And so, Israel's very existence after the Babylonian exile was proof positive of God's love and faithfulness, especially when you consider Edom and all the other nations and kingdoms of the world. This is Malachi's point of encouragement to the people. Look, guys, things might not be all that great or glorious right now, but you're alive, right? You, you've been resurrected from uh, death in exile. God is working out His plans. But why? Why? Why would God do this only for Israel? Paul comes back to this and expands on it in great detail from uh, a much... He, he has, Paul has the full revelation of God's mysterious plan uh, that is unveiled in Christ. And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 are Paul's take on this same basic question of why did God choose Israel, but what is going on now that they seem to have rejected God's Messiah? That's the question Paul's dealing with there. Romans 9 through 11 is not primarily some sort of abstract, systematic theology paper on individual election. It definitely has application for our understanding of how God uh, elects and chooses and predestines individuals, but it's primarily Paul's retelling of Israel's story. And how God has faithfully fulfilled His covenant with Abraham by preserving a remnant through whom the Messiah has now come 
to bless the Gentiles. If you were, if you read Romans 9 and 10, Paul, he moves from Abraham to Isaac and Rebekah, to Jacob and Esau, to Moses, to Hosea, to Isaiah. He's moving down to the exile. The whole thing is just tracing out the story of Israel's history and God's preservation of His, of his covenant and faithfulness to His promises in spite of Israel's rebellion. The situations are obviously very different, but Paul is essentially answering many of the same doubts and questions as Malachi. Has the Word of God failed? What about God's promises? So despite these very different historical perspectives, you see similar threads throughout Malachi and throughout Paul as they answer these objections and make a very similar point about the purpose of God's election. The whole point of God's covenant with Israel was for the blessing of the whole world. In Genesis 12, right? Uh, the covenant with Abraham, uh, when Abraham is initially chosen and called by God, God promised to bless Abraham, to make his name great, to bless all the families of the earth through him. And God also promised that anyone who cursed Abraham would be cursed by God. Think about, think about this. It's, it makes complete sense, right? In order for the Messiah to come through Israel and bless all the nations, God has to protect Israel and punish her enemies, or else there will be no Israel through whom Messiah would be able to come. Malachi says a similar... Uh, his point in verse 5 goes along these same lines about the purpose of God's blessing being for the purpose of blessing the nations. Malachi 1.5 says, Your own eyes shall see this. Shall see what? Shall see God's faithfulness in protecting you and in blessing you and in delivering you from your enemies. And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. In, in one sense, in the most basic sense, Malachi is assuring the people that God, the God of Israel is not some impotent territorial deity that can be carried off into captivity and then just sort of you know, loses all his power. He's not tied to one geographical place or to one particular people group. He is the God over all the nations. More importantly though, I think there is this sense that will be fleshed out a little bit later throughout the book that God's protection of Israel and His judgment on wicked nations like the Edomites will bring about blessings on the nations far beyond the borders of Israel. And they are promised to be able to begin to see this with their own eyes. Of course, we have seen the, the full uh, realization of this as the Messiah has inaugurated the new covenant and brought the Gentiles into the kingdom. But God's power over all the nations is so that His name will be glorified by all the nations. 
Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God's sovereignty and election, uh, like I said, is not a popular doctrine, even among many Christians. Nor is it a particularly easy matter to grasp. There are so many things that are beyond our finite understanding. There are so many things that God has hidden from us. So many mysterious things that we are not privy to. But it is an inescapable biblical doctrine and it is vital for us to try to to understand to, to the extent that we're able we must understand and appreciate the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty because, and this is why Malachi opens this way. You think he would kind of warm up uh, the audience, you know, with something a little bit softer to chew on, you know, a little appetizer, not start in with the main, you know, course, some tough meat uh, to, to chew on, but God's message to Israel begins this way because God's sovereignty in election is is intended to humble us, to give us hope, and to spur us on to holiness. In Malachi's day as in ours, God's sovereignty demands humility. God's grace disabuses us of the notion that God owes us anything. God's grace destroys our self-righteousness. God chooses the weak things of the world to display His strength. God chooses the foolish things of the world to display His wisdom. And as Paul says in Romans 9, who are you you to demand an account of God? If the potter wants to make Something different with a vessel of clay. Is that not the potter's prerogative? God's sovereignty demands humility. But it also gives us hope. It also gives us encouragement. The fruit of humility is always blessing and hope. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the way that we are given hope through the doctrine of election and through the outworking of God's sovereign will, is that we are reassured that nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Despite all evidence to the contrary, despite uh, all of the, the circumstances around us that would lead us to doubt God's love or His goodness, We have hope that God is in control and that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, don't get me wrong. God's mercy can be quite severe. In fact, God's love often hurts us. Sometimes we think God loves us just a little too much. C.S. Lewis said, if God is love, He is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though He has often rebuked us and condemned us, He has never regarded us 
with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because He is what He is, His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because He already loves us, He must labor to make us lovable. This is the hope that we have because of God's election. Being the church, being God's elect people, gives us hope in the face of trials, afflictions, or discipline that in fact God's promises cannot fail and that His covenant cannot be broken. That He will finish what He started. And then finally, God's grace in election spurs us on to holiness and perseverance. We don't, because we know that uh, God's love is totally unmerited, is based on nothing that we could do or say or bring to God, we don't presume upon God's grace or demand our rights, but instead we trust in God's grace. We trust in Christ and we work out our salvation by the power of God's Spirit within us because God provides what He demands. Our assurance is not in ourselves or some introspective test that we can give ourselves to see if we're really elect. Our assurance is in Christ alone. He is, as Calvin said, the mirror of our election. How do you know you're elect? By, by looking, fixing your gaze, fixing your hope on the elect one, Jesus Christ. And as we fix our gaze on Him, as we are assured of God's favor to us in Christ, we become more like Him. God's blessing, though, is not just for ourselves. God's blessing always is to us for the sake of the world. God's blessing on His people always extends beyond His people. Oh, how great are the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments. How unknowable His ways. Who knows the mind of our God? And who can bring counsel to Him? Who has given to God that God should repay? For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of Your sovereignty, for the good news of Your gracious election, that even though we deserve nothing but death, You have chosen us to be Your people, to pour out Your blessings on us, to give us comfort and hope in the face of affliction, that we might in turn 
be the vehicles through which you bless the world. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us. Help us not to receive your grace in vain. Help us to persevere in hope, always fixing our eyes on Christ and finding in Him full confidence and assurance that we are your people, your children, for your glory, for the glory, for the praise of your glory. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Let us call upon God together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and that sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, through whom you have made known your truth and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, for the Church, which is the body and bride of Christ, for the means of grace, for the lives of all faithful and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. Lord, save and defend your church purchased with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Give to her pastors and ministers endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through your word and holy sacraments. Give her ruling elders and deacons who shepherd the flock and show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church might bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. God of all comfort and protection, we bring before you all who are in any way afflicted all persons oppressed with poverty, sickness, unemployment, or other trouble of body or mind. Father, we especially pray today for the several expectant mothers in our congregation that You would grant them and the children they carry health and faith. We thank You for the healthy birth of Coleman Hamby this week. We ask that You would bless and comfort and heal loved ones who are suffering bodily ailments, including Blanche Laughlin, Brenda Jordan, Caleb Hanby, Suzanne Shelton, Sylvia Douglas, Lee Porter, Gregory Morris, Sally Smith, Martha Godwin, Ann Bullard, Amy Sanders, Dean Turner, Zoe Shaoku, Sarah Claudia, Michelle Stevenson, Ashley Hamlin, and those we now name in our hearts before you. Father, grant these all the consolations of which they have need and overrule their present sufferings to their eternal good. Have mercy on those to whom death draws near. Bring comfort to those in sorrow or mourning. And to all, grant a measure of Your love, taking us into Your tender care. Lord, today we ask You too that You would show mercy to our nation, these United States. Grant our land repentance that this nation might be discipled in righteousness, truth, and honor. Grant us leaders who fear You and love Your Word. Undo bad laws and bad judgments. Give us grace that we might turn from the idolatries that stain our culture and destroy lives. Freely grant Your blessings to us, Your church in this land, that as a people set apart by Your Word, our holy lives might witness to Your Gospel. 
be a shield of protection for us, that our civil freedoms might be preserved, and that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Rebuild marriage and true family life in our culture. Help us to turn from selfish lusts, from greed, from violence, from dishonesty, from laziness and sloth, from pride, from willful stupidity. Forgive our foolish trust in military might, in technology, and in elected leaders. In the slaughter of the unborn in our land, make our laws and courts reflective of your perfect justice. In the senseless violence and bloodshed in our cities, in the strife between different classes and races of people who ought to live together in peace, and through the service of your people, make provision for the poor and needy. We know, O Lord, only you can do these things. Great God, we are deeply grateful for the land we live in, for its heritage and its freedoms, for its prosperity, its abundance of resources, its diversity. But we also know that in many ways we have abandoned our heritage. We have forgotten you in the midst of our prosperity. We call evil good and good evil. And so we ask that you would show us mercy. Do not judge us as our sins deserve. Be kind and patient that many might be brought to repentance. Spare our cities for the sake of the righteous. Ultimately, we know it is not merely our constitution we have violated, but your word. And we know we will be judged accordingly. We pray that we might kiss the sun and that our rulers might kiss the sun as well, that his wrath might not flare up against us, but that we might know his peace. May King Jesus reign unchallenged over these United States and indeed over every nation under heaven. We humbly entreat you, Lord, for all sorts and conditions of men, that you would be pleased to make your ways known unto them, your salvation to all nations. Send forth your light and your truth into all the earth. Raise up, we pray, faithful servants to labor in the gospel at home and in distant lands. We especially pray for persecuted saints throughout the world, our brothers and sisters, who because of their loyalty to Christ suffer greatly. Throw down the false gods, the idols who lead men and cultures astray. Protect and provide for your people in every nation that your church might flourish. We rejoice with thanksgiving in all those who have labored and served You in Your church on earth and who now rest from their labors, keep us in fellowship with all Your people and bring us at length to the joy of Your everlasting kingdom. All these things and whatever else You see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, Your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with You in the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. Amen.